from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. I'm Chris Beam, and uh, welcome to Democracy Works. And I'm Michael Berkman. We're speaking today with Matt Jordan. Matt's an associate professor of media studies in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications. Matt studies how the structure of media affects what we see and what we're what we're reading. Right, our, our democracy and our culture. Right, right. Yeah, uh, interesting topic. I mean, when I think about it, uh, I'm struck by how much my own media consumption has changed over the last, I don't know, five, ten years. Well, and even going back longer than that. I mean, both of us are, you know, been around a while, and we've seen the media climate change dramatically. Yeah, I mean, I I learned how to fold the New York Times on a commuter train. Yeah, <laughs> uh, from my father, and I can't. I, I can't I, think of the last time I've read a hard copy. Right, of I, I delivered the Omaha World Herald on a bike. Yeah, those are, those days are long gone. A- actually, yeah, I delivered our local paper. I delivered our local paper as well, and I used to read it cover to cover. Right, and now I don't get any hard copies. Of yeah, well, we're just saying how freaking old we are, so we just <laughs> move on. But <laughs> well, but also also to make a point about how you know how what we consume has changed. Right, and I know that you know now I wake up and I I, I use my Twitter feed and I use my Facebook feed as uh, as aggregators mm-hmm. of and as a way of uh, as a word I'm thinking of here as a way of uh, of pulling together my different media sources and uh, it's very different well it's very different and and all those tools are incredibly powerful incredibly useful and anytime you have both those things true it's also likely to be incredibly dangerous you know or, or problematic anyway and let's face it but There's all, a lot of money to be made here, too. But also amazing. It's keeps, empowering. Yeah, it's empowering. Yeah. It keeps keeps me immersed in stories throughout the day. It's, right. it's, it's very different. It's also, you know, I, I we, we hear a lot about how people are so much more siloed these days in their information sources. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think back to when I was a kid, again, we're old. And so there were th- three or four TV channels. Right. Uh, there were real gatekeepers. And we were all essentially getting our news from the same gatekeepers, mm-hmm. and that whole model is gone. Right, right. No, and 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 the implications are are serious, right? Um, and and what Matt has done, one of the things that I think his work that is so interesting is that he um, looks at what's at the current media. Uh, landscape in the context of history, and so he will, he will talk about how um, you know this um, new manifestation of media and of technology and its Im- impact on media is echo is an echo of um, you know the rise of the printing pa- press and the penny dailies and the radio and um, a variety of other technological advances and every t- and there are patterns here that I think are really interesting. Yeah. So why don't we go to Matt and uh, and Jenna and uh, hear what he has to say. And we'll come back and talk more about it. That sounds great. Right. Jenna. All right. So this is Jenna Spinelli from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy uh, here today with Matt Jordan. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Uh, glad to be here. So it is a pretty interesting time to be uh, a media studies scholar here in, in 2018. Um, and I, I know that this is um, perhaps a, a fairly recent um, addition to your area of, of scholarship. Could we maybe start there? Um, tell us you know, how you got into studying this, this idea of um, misinformation and the, the history of fake news and, and what drew you to it? Well, I'm, as a media scholar, I'm always looking to see how structures of media are impacting the cultural conversations we have with each other, kind of the way our, we create shared meaning. And uh, uh, so I'm always kind of looking to see what's happening in the present as a focal point for any of my work, whether it's historical or whatnot. And it's 
starting in 2016 and or 2015 in the run-up to uh, the elections, potentially corrosive phenomena for democracy, and it's kind of continued along that vein since. Yeah, and, and uh, has that corrosion that you observed in 2015 continued in the, the years since? It it's, has worked its way through the body of the car into the guts, I think, and uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm continuing to work on this. All right. And so I, I know that you um, have, have done some work um, kind of chronicling the history of, of the term fake news. Can, can you tell us about that? Well, like as in anything, the, the words don't just emerge out of air. And even though Donald Trump claimed that he invented the term, which, which is a, you know, a classic Trump move, uh, it's actually a, a, a very old term that had to do with the emergence of a particular incentive structure for lying in mass media at the end of the 19th century. So fake news emerged as a term actually by the muckrakers who were concerned with the way in which uh, kind of mass media at that time, so the introduction of the steam press, these larger circulated dailies, especially associated with like the Hearst, these big mega conglomerates of media, how they were using uh, those media technologies to essentially lie to the people to and there at the time they were uh, they liked the uh, mustard gas was there in chloroform were their favorite uh, forms for talking about gaslighting but um, so they they came up with this term fake news to describe not just the stuff that we've kind of come to think of as just the outright lies but also the subtle uh, uh, omission of stuff uh, that was not in the uh, interests of big business. So uh, so fake news became something that progressives and socialist journalists uh, were using to decry the kind of corporate for-profit news of the 19th century. Right. And so so some of that, that behavior seems like it's not unlike some of the allegations against Fox News, right, in terms of how they, they frame information and, and maybe even some, some counter-arguments about um, MSNBC on the left or kind of the the partisanization of, of, of media in our current landscape. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Hearst, who is the king of fake news, figured out uh, that basically the way to sell copy, the way to get people to buy a daily news, uh, news, whatever you wanted to call it, news maybe, or was to turn it into soap opera, was to turn it into kind of a serial melodrama where you have kind of evil agents battling good agents all the time. And that's really the structure of Fox News today. And Fox's news, the the what's not surprising about Fox News is the kind of uh, claims they make. Um, we all know that they're going to be essentially um, propagandists for Trump right now. It's state media. But what's really surprising is the stuff they omit. Um, the, the, if you look at like screenshots of what's going on, there'll be a huge event. You know, Mueller will drop some enormous allegation and Fox News is covering like college protests by liberals, you know, right. that some uh, conservative has been, uh, some small group of students has uh, dared to to speak out against them. And this is the, the left, you know. So the way that they omit these huge news stories and create this kind of constant feedback loop uh, is something that you see the uh, antecedents to in old fake news, but it's they've really just taken it to a, a, a kind of new level. Right. And the other thing, obviously, that that, that is now that did not exist in the, the Hearst days is kind of the whole um, algorithm of, of things and, and how social media platforms and, and Google and, and other sites kind of dictate and kind of amplify some of the things that these, these media outlets are, are doing. Exactly. So, um, so yesterday there was a there was a, a story about how conservatives tend to be searchers in terms of their news content that they're they're uh, 
in a way this makes them prey to um, conspiracy theories because they tend to search for and research the news information. But with Google algorithms, essentially what Google does is it st it produces stuff uh, in our feed that is, uh, I think the term Zuckerberg likes on Facebook a lot, is relevant to us. But that essentially means stuff that we would be predisposed to believe due to our sensibilities and our belief systems. And so what we're getting more often than not with algorithms in order to get us to interact with these media are feedback loops, right. uh, stuff that kind of is reinforcing our biases and our, and our sensibilities. And, and of course, to, to keep people coming back because there's, there's a profit motive to all of this exactly. too, right? The profit motive for the new media, it was for, for Hearst and for the you know, people up to that point, it was to get, be able to tell their advertisers that they had so many people reading the news and then they could set their ad rates to that. But the new incentive is to keep us interacting. Um, and that's why the kind of new serial melodramatic format where it's really about maintaining levels of anxiety keeps us engaging with it. And the more we engage with it, the more they get a sense of our vulnerabilities. And that's really what it's about. I mean, Zuckerberg's been in the news a lot recently trying to defend what they do. And, you know, he, he, um, he claims that they're not selling our data. And, and in a way, a very technical, cynical way, he's not lying. But what they're doing is they're creating digital profiles that they can give access to uh, advertisers. And so, I'm going to give you a type of person who has these vulnerabilities, and you can use that to sell them whatever you're selling. And each time we click on something, we're creating a, a digital profile. And the more sticky the news, the more anxiety-driven it is, the more data they get to, to sell us things that are going to feed into that uh, sensibility. Right. The the other thing that um, that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has has been kind of in in the the news a lot for recently were his comments about um, Holocaust survivors and, and an interview he did where he said even though he doesn't you know personally agree with with Holocaust deniers finds what they do kind of uh, reprehensible that he still feels that they have a voice on on Facebook and that kind of speaks to I think a, a, a struggle that that companies like Facebook and even some some more mainstream media outlets have been grappling with, which is how to kind of preserve a, a commitment to the truth while without being accused of, of being biased, right? Facebook is a, a behemoth that is really troubling for, on so many levels in terms of, so it, it's interesting, you know, Zuckerberg is shrewd enough and Facebook is shrewd enough that all of its talking points are related to democracy and sociality, right? Uh, so the the kind of talking point about voices, right? This is a kind of pluralistic concern for democracy that we need to let more voices into the conversation. But that's, um, you know, that is covering up the fact that they are a company now that is larger than a nation state, like in terms of its GDP and its power in terms of determining. They've gobbled up all of media. 75% of ad revenue now goes through them. They can make or break content based on whatever they, they set their, their news feed to. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting that he's using this term voices. But, you know, it's, this is a struggle, I think, for people who talk about democratic theory. Are we really talking about any voices, right? Because just allowing voices, which is kind of a cliche in a way if we think about it, is not mean that we're going to have pluralistic conversation that is productive to the kind of ongoing conversation we need for a thriving democracy, right? right? Because you could easily have a Hobbesian war of all against all, right, where you just have a slugfest 
where people are screaming at each other, do we need more Sean Hannity's in there? Do we need more Alex Jones Infowars in, on Facebook? Are these the voices that a democracy should be including? Probably not, right? All they do is set people against one another because that's – but that's also what's good for Facebook. The more antagonistic the voices are, the more they rile people up, the more sticky the media gets, the more data Facebook gets. So it's pretty cynical when they use that democratic language to cover up the preservation of their monopoly over the media. Right. And and so given all that, I mean, what what do you see as kind of the the path forward? Uh, Well, you know, there's (laughs) – at each point, uh, and this is something I've looked at in my work, at each point when you get a new emerging media technology, you have these moments of eruption of misinformation as people are trying to figure out what the affordances are. So even if you go back to the printing press, you know, people started using the printing press to do salacious anti-papal or anti-Protestant you know, pamphlets that they would put out. And they were all lies, right? And so it takes a while for people to catch up uh, when the radio emerged, right? Uh, Everybody was on the radio themselves, kind of like early internet in a, in a way. And, but, and so you have like with the Titanic, you have uh, both people talking about it sinking and people talking about it being saved. Um, at that moment, what had to happen was the government had to step in and say, wait a minute, we got to shut this thing down because people are just claiming whatever they want on air and it's getting, it's getting airtime. So, you know, the, the people who say the solutions are market-based – they're they're wrong, I think, because the incentive structures uh, are of the market, which is profit, uh, do not do the same things as contributing to a productive conversation in a democracy. You, somebody has to set the rules. So in a way, I see that as the way forward. And that's what Facebook and Google and these huge international monopolies are trying to avoid is – uh, a, an outside agency to come in and set the rules. Now, Zuckerberg, because he doesn't want to be the king of the world, keeps saying this. I would welcome an outside agency except on the side all my lawyers are doing whatever they can to keep that from happening because that might make our stock price, you know, d- we might dump $100 billion of revenue and, and, and value in one day. But um, I, I think it will require sound thinking about policy, sound thinking about what our commitments are in, to, in terms of discourse and uh, ways to, to deal with that. Now, Facebook is, is a really interesting case because uh, the 1996 Telecommunications Act has this decency language in it. And um, Facebook has always avoided that. They got a waiver for what we call intermediary liability because uh, that keeps them from being liable for the content that's on their page, right? So they've always claimed, oh, we're just a we're platform. Just a platform. We're yeah. just a platform. We don't, we don't provide the contact. You can't sue us. It's the users. It's the social out there that's doing that. And so they're walking this really fine line right now trying to both say it's, it's user-driven but also deal with the public blowback of them being a site for kind of systemic government-organized misinformation that's going on. And I really think the point where they really realize that they once they get into the editorial game, then they open themselves up to all kinds of libel suits uh, because they'll lose their waiver and intermediary liability. So in the, the, the Trump administration, I mean, do you, do you see a place for that government oversight to, to come? And, and if not from, 
from the the government are there are there other places where you think that that type of like titanic era okay we got to like shut this down other places only, that can come from the only time it'll happen is if the if if the democrats sweep in the 2018 election and all of a sudden the trump administration is is on the brunt end of of this all of a sudden i'm sure they will want government oversight because they can pack the <laughs> regulatory uh, people just like they've done with the EPA um, and make sure their content gets out there. I mean, I, my view of their, them is completely cynical and mafia-like, but um, I don't see that happening. It's going to, again, this will require people to be aware uh, of the, and the, you know, the right has been so effective in making people think that regulation is bad for everything. For 50 years, they've had think tanks whose job it was to promote that as a, as a media frame. It's not true, of course. Regulation is actually good for business, good for pretty much everything. Um, but, uh, but people believe it because it has a kind of truthiness to it. So it, that, that's going to be an uphill slog. Um, but the, I think it's what is required because the, the market can't keep up. Most of our ways of dealing with misinformation right now in, in, in the American system are all uh, post hoc. We, we, after the fact, we fact check. After the fact, we, you can sue somebody for libel. After the fact... But with the speed of dissemination now with uh, digital technology, it's it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it seems to to really becoming be becoming more pervasive. I was looking at a, a survey from Gallup the other day where something like fifty eight percent of of respondents feel that they you know can't keep track of, of what's what or don't know what to believe. Or so on the one hand, we have seemingly more information than we've ever had before, but we have less trust in the, the, the truth behind that information. Yeah, I kind of, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm getting older and I have a limited brain space, but, you know, they, people who look at this claim that we have more information, this was a 10 year ago when they were saying this, uh, that we have more information in one day than people in the 15th century had in a lifetime, Right. So we're just being bombarded with stuff every day. And when there's so much of it out there, it's hard to know how, know what to take. And, you know, this has been the Russian misinformation campaign in Eastern Europe for the last 20 years it's through their war department, right? It's cyber ops. Is you just flood the media sphere with so much stuff that nobody knows. You just fog everything. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is there's, you know, when Rudy Giuliani goes on TV – and why he's able to go on TV is another question, um, because all he's going to do is fog. He's just going to put misinformation out there. And the, and the idea is not to persuade people. The idea is just to get people not to know what to think. Uh, the, the end goal is, uh, is confusion and, uh, and just kind of people stumbling around. What happens when people are confused and don't know where to turn is they'll probably turn toward their their instincts. They'll probably turn toward what they believe. And that makes them more reliable. Uh, that makes them more f- af- afraid. But that's everything that's bad for democracy, right? Democracy requires trust. Democracy requires not reactive fear-based thinking, but kind of judicious, deliberative thinking. And the more people are confused, the more they're afraid of not knowing, to, the more they're anxious, the less they're able to participate meaningfully in, in democratic deliberation. Right. And so, so what responsibility uh, do, do journalists have in these, in these situations? So the folks who are talking with the, the Rudy Giuliani's of the world or people covering not just Washington, but even state and local politics or you know, trying to, to do their best to hold those in, those in power accountable. Huge responsibility, right? There's, I mean, the freedom of the press is there as a, as a check toward the powerful who, you know, 
since Machiavelli, people know they're going to lie because it's in their interest to do so. And the check of the journalist has always been to to see if what they say is true. Uh, I think the the structures of media as it is right now make it entirely unable to deal with um, with these bad faith actors. So why anybody has Giuliani on or Kellyanne Conway on or these people who are bad faith agents is beyond me. Because uh, I think what it is is there's this both side model. And part of this is because, you know, the, the right wing has been working the ref, you know, saying, oh, liberal bias, liberal bias, liberal bias. So, you know, say something like climate change, 97, 99% of scientists think it's happening. But where's the balance? Because that 1% needs to get their voice out there too, right? Again, the voices stuff. Um, but it's, that's a bad faith. That's a 1% of person who's a bad faith. Do they require an equal seating at the table? I don't think so. So when Kellyanne Conway comes, you know exactly what she's going to say. She's going to gaslight. She's going to fog. So the journalistic ethic there cannot just be both sides. We have to give vo both voices and we have to stay neutral. So that ethic of care, I think, has got to be in it. And it has to be care for democracy, I think. Uh, and that is one of the ways I think that the, that the media itself can build trust back in the media is by showing that they stand for something more than just their shareholder profits. I mean, right now they are, especially cable news, it's just failing miserably to uh, keep those people off. They, CNN keeps saying, we're never going to do it again. When Kellyanne Conway, you're not coming back. Yeah. Then a week later, she's back on because she's great TV, right? She's going to say some incendiary content and they'll have fodder for the 24-hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. They'll invite on – they'll get their Rolodex on of people who you know react to bad stuff. They'll set them up. They'll put them on TV. They'll get some makeup on. And for the next 20 hours, they'll react to the outrageous thing that Kelly right. Conway and, just said. Yeah, and it'll it'll provide grist for the mill for, exactly. for, for Facebook and for Reddit and right. for all these these conversations. Great digital, continue. great sound bites, great memes, great. And so it's, you know, Donald Trump is right when he's saying, um, when I go away, the media's ratings are all going to dry up. Yeah, because we've never had such something so toxic before. Turns out people really love to watch a train wreck. You know, a dumpster fire. It's exciting. Everybody crowds around. Um, but it's terrible for democracy. It's awful for democracy. So, um, you know, these cable news, it's hard for them to do that because, you know, their, their executives are saying, looking at the weekly ratings and the monthly quarterly things, and they're going to their board of trustees shareholder meetings, and they're saying, how can you complain about what I'm doing? I'm making money hand over fist. Um, and this is where public media, local media, and things whose uh, incentive structure are different have to, I think, be underwritten and uh, supported. Right. Yeah. I just read um, the the founder of Craigslist just gave something like twenty million dollars or or something like that to to fund kind of local media out of the the New York system. It's, so things and like it's, that. It's great. I mean, the local media, like you know, the the in the New York, New York system, like the Daily News, you know, which is which a pretty decent local paper with with some national reach. You know, the Tribune online contron, which sounds so ominous because it is, um, you know, went in and fired over half of the reporters. So and that's kind of indicative of what's happening to local news coverage everywhere. And the thing is, is that what people actually care about are the spaces they live in. These national spectacles of politics, you know, will the libs get owned by the conservatives? That's wrestling. 
that's a spectacularized democracy. I think what makes people invest in participation are things in the places that they inhabit, right? These are things that I can understand as a citizen who lives in a place. That's what local media does. They report things that people can understand and believe in and aren't just reacting to like a soap opera. And I think that's what would regain people's trust in media. And unfortunately, for the last you know, 40 years or so, since the Gannett model started gobbling up local newspapers, um, that's what's been lost. That's what they've been shedding first are local, local beats, people who understand the communities. And what that's done is this vicious feedback loop of making people care less about their papers, right? Like I, every once in a while, you know, the Center Daily Times, I want to support that paper because – but other than sports content, it's just syndicated crap. Yeah, you know? it's just like self-fulfilling. Yeah, they, they don't have any, right. any resources. They can't produce good content. Then no one reads it and then it kind of spirals. Right. spirals so why should I do there. it? Yeah. Why should I you know, buy my local paper if the local paper is not going to tell me about local things? Right. And that's where a lot of the worst stuff in our democracy is going on is the people are you know, making these terrible decisions at city and – state government and nobody knows they're happening. Yeah, we, we talked about that uh, last season. We interviewed um, Hallie Stockton, who is a Penn State alum, who's the managing editor at Public Source in Pittsburgh, kind mm -hmm. of the, one of the like new wave of, of nonprofit journalism entities trying right. to, to come forward. So, And, and, and the, this is what, you know, if, if Jeff Bezos wants to help democracy, you know, how about doing that? It would take like a day of his salary probably to fund a hundred different local news organizations. So we have this, you know, great concentration of wealth, great concentration of media. And but I think what people care about and what gets them to participate in, in democracy are are local issues. Yeah, and there's you know certainly no shortage of those, no shortage of, of interest in in these these topics. I think people have kind of the the, the capacity to to want to learn about these things, right. but in the in the absence of, of a place to go to find it, they resort back to their what they know, their networks, their their echo chambers that we talked right. about and, earlier. And that's in the, and in a way, this is if you think of news as entertainment, which I'm pretty sure CNN and Fox do. I think actually, I was looking, I looked this up to think about you know as I was railing against the, the wind the other day to think about how, could Fox's license be pulled by the FCC. But actually, they, they, um, their license isn't even as a news organization. It's, it's a satire show. Uh, so therefore, they can say whatever they want. Um, and, you know, Sean Hannity uh, doesn't consider himself a journalist. He just plays one on TV. Um, so yeah, this, is, this is a real, real issue because the reason they're successful in terms of commercial media ventures is because people would much rather watch a storm and drum, pathos-filled, melodramatic reality show than they would like to slog through the, you know, the ins and outs of whether we should have a, a raise the local ordinance for this or that. Um, it's more fun, right? and it makes them feel like they're participating in democracy. Right. Well, so you know, we hope our our little podcast here does something to <laughs> help kind of get will, that things it, out there. And and you know, uh, uh, podcasts are a form that could re replace that. You know that, and not just because they're interesting to listen to. I, I mean, this is kind of like the, uh, the the return of talk of uh, of a kind of talk radio that isn't toxic in a way. Uh, the the tone that we're taking hopefully is more deliberative. The the way that we're addressing issues may be more more thoughtful. But um, there's, they're cheap to make, so that you don't have to, uh, uh, you don't have to kind of invest as much capital in, in, in talking about things, which is the an issue with with TV and and uh, print journalism.
So Matt, we're going to um, bring things to a close here. We always end every episode with our four mood of the nation poll questions. So we'll tweet the or we'll we'll treat this like a bit of a of a lightning round kind of. Okay. So there are four things related to um, politics, the media, kind of current state of affairs. Um, so thinking about those things, uh, what makes you angry? What makes me angry? Um, Trump makes me angry. Uh, it, Trump and Trump makes me angry. It's uh, I, you know, at Penn State we had this uh, Sandusky thing you may have heard about, and um, we I got very familiar with the term gas uh, gaslighting and uh, grooming, and grooming is what an abuser does to push the limits uh, to desensitize uh, victims uh, so that they won't think that what is happening to them is bad, and that's kind of on a daily level I see the grooming of democracy towards something like authoritarianism so that he just pushes the limits and pushes the limits and pushes the limits. And that, that makes me angry. Yeah. yeah we've, we've talked a lot about that on this podcast for sure. Um, flip side of that, uh, what makes you proud? Um, is this in media or? Um, just, just in general, current state of politics, current um, affairs. Yeah. Um, I, I'm proud of people's resilience in the face of the former uh, that there are still a lot of really good people doing good good work out there, a lot of really good reporting uh, going out there that doesn't get uh, ProPublica is doing great things. And, and, and in a way that, you know, that feeds into an old narrative that as uh, somebody who works on film a lot, you know, the kind of triumph of the little guy against the big machine, it's very kind of Capra-esque. And that makes me proud when I see people fighting the good fight. Right. And then uh, what makes you worry? Uh, I worry that the power structures are co getting concentrated in the hands of a very few. Um, you know, there, I saw this list the other day where nine people have more wealth than four billion people worldwide. That there's nothing to be. I mean, otherwise we just start hoping that our our uh, our. Uh, sovereigns are benevolent and that's that's a worrying state to be in yeah for sure uh, and then finally uh, what gives you hope uh, again people's uh, students give me hope um, seeing a generation that seems to want something different seems to uh, not be falling for the same hook line and sinker um, that of the last that again people are smart and they're resilient and and, and they uh, and they give me hope all right, well, we'll leave it there. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. All right, so there was a lot to, yeah, to really. chew on in there. And uh, um, really impressive um, um, comments and, and, and um, analysis from Matt. And, and I know, but usual, I don't know that I'm feeling so good about my news feed anymore. Yeah, right, exactly. Or, or how do we... Uh, how do we address this in a constructive way, right? I yep. mean, um, I, I do think that uh, that Matt has some uh, a real. He's really instructed me in terms of just seeing this not as something that is merely new, but is also um, you know reflective of stuff that's happened all the time in history. That that democracies have to adjust; they are constantly adjusting, and the 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 fact that we now have these behemoths, corporate behemoths, um, isn't re is at least um, similar to the same corporate behemoth of the Hearst Papers, and they're both 
um, operating according to wanting to make money, and that's what's driving their decisions. And and yes, but they're much more reluctant to call themselves journalists. That's right, and and they're, which really complicates the issues of absolutely what we do with them, absolutely. how we regulate them, and what their responsibilities I, are. That's right, and 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 it's not entirely clear. <clears throat> I mean, Mark Zuckerberg would not call himself Hearst. No, he wouldn't. But the power of his industry, uh, its impact on democracy, and the buckets of money that he's making is all very similar to Hearst. Yeah, and and um, and as were you know Penny Daly's. I mean, the model of objective journalism is really a century old. Right before that, there was no expectation of that really. But but none of that um, changes. The, the fundamental point that the, these folks are out to make money and they're out and, and, they're, and so the, there's that. And then there's also people who are out to influence and control the, the, the narrative and uh, use that to advance their own objectives. And that's, that's true, too. What's different is we don't know right now how to address that, what to do about it. Yes, I think that's true. And we have a... Uh... Yes, and we have a we have an administration that doesn't really seem that interested. In On it. the and contrary, it, it, right? In large part <laughs> because they're able to use it so much to their advantage. And I think that's one thing that is um, that is very new and and very disconcerting, right? So I mean, a lot of the new media structure, not necessarily stuff that Matt was talking about, but when you get down into these, uh, you know, uh, discussion boards and and that type of thing. Uh, you know, where all kinds of wild conspiracy theories are floating around and then they eventually maybe get picked up by some of the fringe media and then they get picked up a little bit further and further and they enter in. And we have a president who talks about them. Right. Who is a conspiracy right. conspiracy right. theorist himself. And, and, and so he's able to use – I'm not being articulate about this – but he's able to use this sort of media environment to his advantage. So they don't really have that much of an interest in looking critically. The idea that a president would, um, you know – use these media formats to um, increase, exacerbate uh, distrust in the media, to um, exacerbate the notion that there, there is a, uh, an agenda here that, that transcends uh, the truth or trying to figure out what's really going on. Um, if, if that trust is, is eroded, then journalism can't function. If journalism can't function, democracy can't function. Well, right. Journalism, journalism can't, can't function because it's been discredited. Right. Rather, he's discrediting it all the time, which also opens up this room for these sort of fringe voices to substitute. Right. I, you know, I just want to say I, I totally agree with, with Matt's notion of, of pride. I, I just am so struck by how um, many members of the, uh, the traditional, you know, um, what do they call them, uh, ink-stained wretches, is just risen to the occasion here with, with a level of, of work and integrity and, um, and uh, um, propriety that is really, I mean, I don't know where we would be without it. Yeah, yeah. And he also, he raises some, he raised something there that, that uh, was, uh, that I think is a challenge for us. You know, as we're going forward in the podcast, as we think about what what we should be talking about in terms of democracy and what American democracy is all about, this notion that that not that just having all voices coming into a discussion is not necessarily good for democracy, and, and so that raises a lot of questions. Well, what voices are? Mm -hmm. Well, what should we be? What should we be talking about? Who should we be listening mm -hmm. to? Who determines 
these things. And and if if the if the structure of the media is increasingly irresponsible about this or cavalier well, or, you know, I, I, this is not my job. My job is just to report the news. Right. Well, or my I'm, job is just to monetize uh-huh. as many voices as I can. Right. Uh, so what replaces that? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I, I don't know that I don't know if Matt has answers. He didn't expand into that, but I don't know that I have the I don't, I don't have the answer either. Well, you know, on the one hand, you know, there is something amazing about the time you know we're living in, right? I mean, you could not, you know, you couldn't go buy your own steam press in the 19th century. You couldn't buy your own cameras and uh, and uh, uh, television studio, but any yet, I mean, you we are all evidence of the fact that any. Yahoo's can go put up a podcast, Anybody right? Anybody can do a podcast right? now. And so that's a good thing, right? I mean, you know, opening this kind of uh, this opportunity up to um to all of us is is great, but there are there are responsibilities that um all of us uh have to um work to achieve and um in the context of of a democracy. And if we're not doing that, then democracy's going to suffer. And I think you've seen the evidence of that. Yeah. This has been Democracy Works. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. And uh, I, I want to remind everyone to visit our website, democracyworkspodcast.com, for information on the show and how to contact us. Please don't hesitate to rate us, review us, give us some stars. And I think today we're also saying goodbye to uh, our intern, Gabby Ross, who's been working with us all summer all and summer a good long. part of the spring. Today's her last recording session with us. So somebody out there in, in media world should be, should be, if you're looking for a good producer. Gabby graduates this weekend. Yep. Right. She'll have a degree in communications. And lots of experience working, working with, with Yahoo's. <laughs> there you go. So thank you to Gabby. Yeah. Um, so, and thank you all for listening.